Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So we're reading from Galatians. We're studying it as a church. We're in uh, chapter three. I'm going to read, uh, I think, starting at the 26th um, verse. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, th- this is the first letter that Paul wrote. He goes out. He's a missionary. He's not trying to reach Jews. He's reaching the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles uh, in this community. In Galatia, he starts churches. Uh, then he moves to another community. That means they're kind of on their own now. And uh, so, te- so there's teachers that come out of uh, Jerusalem, out of Judea, and they're dogging Paul, and they go into communities where he's led people to faith in Christ, and they try to alter the message. They say, Paul didn't give you the whole deal. We got to clean up the mess he's made. You know, um, it's not just Jesus you need. You need Jesus, but you need uh, to obey the law. You need to obey the Jewish laws, the kosher laws, um, you need to, uh, um, you need to be circumcised. You need to become, um, Jewish. Um, got it. And, uh, Paul, um, writes this letter then to correct the errors that some are trying to introduce into the churches that he started. So stand if you're willing, we'll read God's word together, starting at verse 26 of Galatians chapter three, for in Christ Jesus, Paul writes, You are all sons of God through works. Is that what it says? You're all sons of God through circumcision. You're all sons of God through following uh, the law. That's not what he says, right? For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith in what Jesus has accomplished for you. You're sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. That's an interesting, it's it's really the language there is like dressing, putting on clothes, right? We cover ourselves with clothes. So now we are covered with Christ. Our sinfulness is covered. We're covered with the righteousness of Christ. You've put on Christ. He says, there's not Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Jesus Christ. So you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Jews and Greeks are, it's a level playing field now. uh, Paul is saying, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are Jewish. You are heirs according to the promise. Verse chapter four, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's my favorite Christmas Eve passage to preach on. Preach on that more on Christmas Eve than anything else. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you, now I want to tell you something interesting, interesting to me at least. In verse 26, it says, for in Christ Jesus, you, 
And uh, in verse six, it says, and because you, now that's actually plural, so you can't tell that in, when it's translated in English. So he's really saying y'all. <laughs> or some say it's all y'all. Um, so it's plural. In other words, he's saying corporately, you, you, you. But then when you get to verse seven, he says, so you, and that's singular. So he's been saying, everyone, everyone, all of you Galatians, everyone. Then he says, so you. As if he's saying, enough with everybody. Now I'm looking right at you. I want you to understand that right now God is speaking right to you. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Amen. Now, I want to point out something. In verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And then in chapter, in verse 6, it says, And because you're sons, God sent forth the Spirit. Isn't that awesome? It's a trinity. God the Father sends forth his son. And God the Father sends forth his Holy Spirit. Both have been sent, right? We're probably better in most Presbyterian kind of evangelical America context with God sending the Son. We're a little less acquainted with that Holy Spirit part, right? And so we're going to sing a song right now. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come in this room, in this place, in your life, in your heart, to help you understand what it means that you're an adopted child of God. It's a bit of a tribute because when Diane and I got married, we moved to Newark, New Jersey, and we worked with a pastor who just died a couple weeks ago. His name was Bill Iverson. His father wrote a little, a little song, Spirit of the Living God, Fall Fresh on Me, for 40 years. When I left my office and out of the building to come here, when I I'm in my office over here and I'm coming in to preach. For 40 years, I've sung this song almost every time I preach before I come, begging God for his Holy Spirit. So I invite you to close your eyes. Unless you don't know the words, you can just look on the screen. But if you know the words, close your eyes. And Adam and Terry are gonna lead us as we ask the Spirit to come. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill Nick Jones never had a, a father. See, Perry Hogston was a great athlete. Perry Hogston um, got drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. Um, he also got a four-year college scholarship to VMI to play um, football. He turned down both of them, and he joined the United States Air Force. 
The Air Force sent him to Amarillo, Texas, and there he met Stephanie Jones, and in fast order, they became engaged, their lives entwined. Um, before they were married, however, he got shipped by the Air Force to, uh, um, to Panama. Now, this is some years ago, so many of you might remember this era, oh, back in the 1400s when there were no cell phones. Um, and so international communication and phone calling was really uh, very difficult, very expensive, and uh, shortly after, um, uh, after Perry Hogston left, um, his girlfriend Stephanie discovered that she was pregnant. And uh, shortly after that, the uh, pregnancy was determined to be very high risk. And uh, her mother came and swept her away to another state to care for her. Um, and uh, so when Perry wrote uh, uh, back to Amarillo, um, when he did, was able to make a call, when he uh, came back there from Panama, he could never locate her. He could never find her. He just assumed he had been jilted uh, by this girl. He never knew anything about a child or uh, a son or a baby or anything. Both their lives went on. Um, Nick Jones knew the difficulty of growing up without a father. Uh, his mother had other children uh, without a dad still in the home. He said by 11, he was the head of his household. He poured a lot of his energy into athletics. Um, and, um, and he said this about his childhood. It wasn't easy, he said. He said, I always wondered who my dad was. I mean, I always wondered if maybe one of the coaches was my dad. But the one thing I never bothered to do when I played athletics was look in the stands like the other kids did because I didn't have a dad. I knew there was no one there to watch me. I knew that there was nobody yelling correction, nobody yelling encouragement, nobody yelling at the refs, not from my family. I was alone, no family and alone. So he ends up being quite an athlete himself. In fact, he um, uh, was also won an NCAA football scholarship uh, he played at Abilene Christian University in Texas, um, and he was a two-time NCAA champion in the discus uh, in track and field. Um, and uh, his dad lived in Missouri somewhere, of course, no knowledge uh, of uh, each other. And um, uh, so somebody impressed on Perry Hogston that uh, there was this thing called Facebook, and maybe he ought to uh, get a Facebook page. He didn't do that social media stuff. And uh, two weeks after he did, um, he discovered he had a son. And not only that, that that son was coming that week to play a college football playoff game in the state of Missouri, only 90 miles away from where he lived. And so arrangements were made for him to meet his son that a week earlier he didn't know even existed. He showed up at the day of the game and in the parking lot, uh, he um, greeted his son, put his hand out, Perry grabbed his son in a big bear hug and they embraced. They had breakfast together. Um, Nick said, uh, we looked alike, we talked alike, we laughed alike, we even ordered the same food. Um, he said, well, when he walked away, I said, he walks just like um, me. Do you know that uh, Nick Jones' team played that night and they got creamed like 38 to 10. They got smashed on the football field. But you know what he said? It was the sweetest day of my life. It was for the first time in my life in the middle of the game. I got to look up in the stands and find my dad watching me. 
You see, stories of family reconciliation, they touch our hearts. For some of us, they make us sad and they really stir deep emotions because you know the deep longing that we have for a father and the love and leadership of a father. And, and for many, many of you know the wounds of alienation that you experienced uh, from a dad whether it was no dad, never knowing your dad, whether it was a disengaged um, dad, whether it was an abusive dad, an alcoholic dad, a hypercritical um, dad, or just flat out absent dad. One nine-year-old girl said her whole life changed. One day she got home from school, her mom and dad sat him down and said they were getting a divorce. Their kids were like, what, what? She said, my dad left that day. And she said, as he left the house, he, he gave me a hug and he said, I will, um, I will come and see you every week. She said, I never saw my father again. The pain, the, the hole in our hearts. Now, I want to tell you something. Even if you had an awesome dad, and some of you have, a Norman Rockwell dad, you know, then you have a dad wound too because the dad wound is self-inflicted. Um, we ran away from our heavenly father and that separation has broken us. It affects every part of our lives, every relationship in our lives. It is a massive void in who we are. We can never be healthy. We can never be healed. We can never be whole until that relationship but the God who made us is reconciled. It has to be repaired. That's why I asked some of you to turn your phones off because God's in the healing business and nothing matters more than this because I, I just want you to know you could have a splendid um, a, a success in your life. You could make buckets of money. Maybe you'll just fall into it. Maybe you'll work hard and get it. Maybe it'll allow you to travel the world over and live in some really fancy places and have some awesome toys. It'll never fill that hole. Maybe you'll have a wonderful spouse and, and, uh, and, and sweet kids, you know. Maybe you'll enjoy being a parent. Not even family can fill that hole. Maybe you'll be known and respected as someone who's successful and virtuous. It doesn't matter what you do in this world. Nothing will ever fill that hole. You will never feel satisfied. You'll always know something at the core of who you are is missing. So this morning, we're going to talk about how do we reconcile that relationship between the creator and between you, between your dad and between you. This passage tells us is that God did two things to bring us healing and to, and to bring us hope, to restore us as his beloved children. Now, it's possible that you're a woman and you say, so what you're telling us is that we can all be sons of God. No, thank you. It's just like the Bible. The Bible uh, has sort of this disregard for uh, women, sons of God. Um, listen, uh, just back off for one um, because men in this room have to deal with the fact that the Bible calls us the bride of Christ, right? It's a metaphor, right? The, the husband loves his wife. Jesus loves his wife. His wife is the church and he lays down his life for the wife. And the Bible says everyone who's a part of his family and the church is his bride. So men are the bride. 
I don't even want to look out at some of you guys. I don't want to picture you in a veil, um, uh, in a wedding dress. It, it, I, I struggle with it myself, just looking at you. Um, so if you're a woman and you say, I, I don't want to be called a, a son, don't miss how radical and egalitarian the nature of what Paul's saying in that culture. In the ancient world, a woman could not be um, a favored child. She couldn't, a daughter could not be an heir. You could not be the firstborn, a son. It was always a son at the position of highest value and priority and affection. That was denied women. But what's this passage saying? Not in God's house. In God's house, male or female, you can be the firstborn. You can be the treasured child. You can be the apple of God's eyes. Don't miss what Paul's saying in an ancient culture that had disregard for women. Paul's saying, God regards you with every bit of importance as he would regard any male. You got it? So let's talk about it together. How do we reconcile this relationship? What did Jesus do? That's the first point. Got it? Now I do give you a warning is that... Um, there's a clock in the back of the room. I might've told you that last week and the screens aren't working back there. So I can't see a clock and, uh, and I lost my watch yesterday. <laughs> so Ron is on the front row and I'm gonna ask Ron to watch his watch and give me a warning. So when it gets to 1230, um, <laughs> just, you know, give me the high sign. Um, so here we go. Sonship secured. You got a worship order. Let's talk about what did Jesus do? How does he heal this uh, deep wound, right? Um, what does Galatians 4 say? In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law, that we would experience the fullness of adoption as sons. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Fullness of time, it's fabulous. At exactly the right time, scholars say, that means. At the perfect time in human history, that's when God intervened. That's when God invaded. It was a time of, of Rome, the ascendancy of Rome. So the world had never been connected like it was then. Roman authority ruled over the world. So that means there was peace. You could travel all throughout um, all the Roman Empire. There were roads built. Do you know, you can still go. You go to... Um, um, places in Italy and places in the Middle East. You can go to places in, um, in the British Isles and you travel on Roman what? Roman roads that are still there um, today. The Romans were phenomenal, weren't they? And the language, it was a common, the lingua franca of the entire world so people could communicate. It was the perfect seedbed for the gospel to race quickly all over the world like it had never been before. The world, it was at the fullness of time. God sent forth his son. Born of a woman. Now that tells us something right there. That this intervention of God to take us from being orphans and far from God and to make us his family, this mission of rescue and reconciliation between God and his creation is going to involve humiliation and suffering. Born of a woman. Born under the law. In the Westminster um, Shorter Catechism, the question is, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? We all know that Christ was humiliated when they nailed him to a tree naked, right? Before a jeering crowd at the end of his life. But what does this tell us? His humiliation begins at the very beginning 
of his earthly life. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being what? Born. Imagine the creator of the universe um, is a fertilized egg in a womb, right? Growing in a womb, amniotic fluid, all that yuck of birth, right? The God who made the whole universe comes that low. In the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law. On the eighth day, what happened to Jesus? He was circumcised. He was under the law. Uh, why is reconciliation needed? Reconciliation. Why, why is this God gap between us and God? Some people say, well, I, I thought we were all children of God. No, we are not. We are separated from God. We are not his children. We are orphans. God is the creator of all. Very often you'll see people very casually say, all the people there, they're all children of God. No, 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 no. Um, all created by God, but he is not the father, not, not children as we know it, with the father who loves them, cares for them, is committed to them. You know what Ephesians chapter two says? We are by nature children of wrath. We are at enmity. We are enemies with God. So Jesus comes to reconcile us. He doesn't come to just find sweet little innocent children and fold them into the family of God. He comes to take the people who would kill God if given the opportunity, which we what? Which we did. Mankind given the opportunity when God takes on flesh and enters the world, we execute him. That's who we are naturally. Something has to happen. If we're gonna become sons and daughters of God, then there needs to be a reconciliation. Something has to take place. Jesus came, comes to affect that. Now, Paul's using an analogy in this passage. It was Roman law. Now, remember, Paul's not writing to the Jews here. He's writing to, uh, to Greeks, to Gentiles, to people outside of, uh, of, of Judaism, right? And so he uses an analogy that people who understood Rome would have understood. It was about adoption. You could have a very rich, wealthy man, and, uh, and he has no heirs. So what's to become of all he has? What's to become of all his wealth? So there was a provision in Roman law that he could take one of his servants and he could adopt that servant and that servant then would be his heir. The only problem was in order to do that, the, the, um, the rich wealthy father had to cover all the debts and obligations of the servant, right? He had to redeem the servant. He had to pay off all his debts. Why were most people in servitude in the ancient world? It wasn't because of their skin color, it was because they were in debt. They had debt they could not pay, they had to work off their debt. And so the, the, the rich man would take responsibility. You got it? So what does Jesus do for us? Jesus must, in order for us to be adopted by God, take responsibility for all our debt. He must redeem us. He must buy us back. That's how we are under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, right? To redeem those who are under the law. So how are we under the law? How are we in debt to the law? What does that mean? The law is 
the righteousness of God, the perfection of God and what he demands of us to be his children. We are obligated to be righteous, but we aren't. There are none righteous. No, not one. Now it's possible that you're better than the people sitting around you. I don't want to look right at those of you who aren't. Um, but that's possible. But you know, it's, it's sort of immaterial that you're better than so-and-so or better than so-and-so or you can find people to compare yourself to feel good about yourself. It, it's really immaterial. You're not righteous. You have not kept the law of God. You cannot have merit with God based on your performance. Now, some people don't think that way. Michael Bloomberg, the recent um, mayor of New York City, said, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close, right? Well, that's a kind of common perception, really. Um, and, and it's also just being a New Yorker. Um, so, um, hey, when you can take a shot, take it. Um, we're obligated to be righteous, but we aren't. The wages of sin is what? Death. We are under death. That means we have a debt to pay that we can't pay. We're also under the law because we're fixated on using the law to justify ourselves. So even people who sit in church are under the law because they don't understand the nature of their salvation and their adoption, and they're constantly using the law to try to compare themselves to other um, people. We are enslaved. You know, either the law crushes us because we don't keep it, or it makes us arrogant and self-righteous because we think we do, right? We're crushed by the law. We know how deep is our sin. We know how rotten we are. We're filled with shame. Or we actually use the law or feel the necessity of, uh, of keeping the law and, um, and uh, we, we, it makes us arrogant, it makes us think too highly of ourselves. Um, I was teaching at a, a ministry for people with addiction issues, most of them addicted to alcohol. And I remember teaching this group of them one night and and when I was done, you know, I kind of walked out of the, the room as a speaker. One of those moments where you say, I think I just think I, I took a swing and I completely missed. Um, I don't think I connected with this group at all. You know, I, I was talking about the gospel and, and the law. And when I walked out, there were four guys outside, remember of the meeting, they were smoking outside. And when I passed them, they said, um, uh, are you a reverend? And uh, I said, uh, yeah. And they said, um, uh, do you have a church? And I said, actually, I do. And they said, well, we're gonna, well you got to start coming there because we go to church and when we do, all we hear is do this, do that, do this. If you don't do it, then God's mad at you. And if you do it, then God likes you. It's exhausting. It's impossible. It's so frustrating. What were they saying they were saying their church experiences keeps them constantly under the what? Under the law. Do this, do this, don't do that, whatever. It's up to you. If you're going to have reconciliation with God, it's up to you. It's crushing. We can't do it, right? So what does Christ do to secure our adoption? 
What did we say you have to do? What did the owner have to do? What did the rich man have to do? He has to pay the debt. Jesus pays all our debt, right? He pays all our debt. Um, he lives the perfect life we could not live, right? And he dies the death we deserve to die. So there's almost any movie with Denzel Washington is fabulous. Um, Denzel Washington uh, is awesome. And um, he flies planes upside down, you know. And um, Denzel's uh, was in a movie called Man on Fire. If you're squeamish about blood, do not watch it. Um, Denzel's fascinating character in that movie because he's a fallen person. He was an FBI agent of some renown. And I think because of his own alcoholism, he loses his position. He's shamed. And, uh, and throughout that movie, he's reading his Bible. It's very interesting. Um, he's searching. He's a searching man. You can tell him looking and uh, looking for redemption and healing. Uh, he's also a hired bodyguard for a very wealthy family in Mexico City. And he... Um, um, gets uh, gravely wounded, almost killed when their little daughter is kidnapped by a cartel. And this begins the primary action of the movie in which Denzel begins to kill every person in Mexico City. Um, um, but the, the movie ends in a, in, a, in a powerful way. When it comes right down to it, he can secure this little girl's freedom. But what's the cost? And so the movie ends with the little girl, Pita, running across a bridge from the, from the possession of the cartel into her family's arms, waiting on the other side of the bridge. And staggering across the bridge, already mortally wounded, towards the cartel is Denzel Washington. See what, see what he's doing? He's redeeming her at the cost of what? His own blood, his own life. That's what Jesus does to secure our salvation. You got it? Um, now I want you to see something uh, else here. He secures our adoption. Um, he, um, and, and in so doing, he procures for us the full rights of being a son of God. He removes our status as sinners deserving condemnation and gives us status as sons, as heirs, as cherished um, children. We get the, the full rights, right? Most Christians think of salvation only as bad moving from us to Jesus. Our sins go to Jesus. What they don't get is the transfer of Jesus' rights and privileges as the Son of God onto us. Do you understand that? They see that, that Jesus has to redeem us, so all our rottenness and sins that we're guilty for go to him. He dies on the cross. What they don't understand is by, by that transfer, we are redeemed we become the sons of God and all the blessings, all of that comes to us, to our account. I mean, you can spend your whole life trying to, trying to savor that. So when I was a... Um, junior, halfway through my junior year in college, um, I met this amazing young girl. Um, her name was Diane, and she was spunky, and she was fun, and uh, she was gorgeous. And so 
in January, we started dating of our junior year in college and it got to May and we had actually survived that long dating each other. Um, and, um, but then what loomed ahead of us was the summer, right? Summer separation. She's going to go back to Chicago. I'm going to go back to South Florida to Boca Raton where my family lived. And, and this is going to be the test of the relationship, right? Is, is this going to continue through this separation? So, um, you know, I knew this, this uh, girl, I'm crazy to lose this girl. And so I had her come down to Florida. I had her come down to Boca Raton. And when she was there, I knew I had to woo her. I knew I had to win her. I knew I had to sink the hook in deep, you know. And uh, if I had any chance of getting her in the boat. And um, trying to use some Citrus County analogies here. for, um, and, um, and so one night when she was down there for a date, um, we drove over to the Boca Raton Hotel and Club one of the most glorious resorts in all of the world, as far as I'm concerned. Boca Raton, Boca Raton, the mouth of the rat, uh, is what the, it was what that name means, because it was a rocky harbor, pirates uh, um, you could be protected from. It became a, a dwelling place of millionaires, and this was the millionaires club. A lot of this, the cloisters, was shipped over from uh, Italy, just a fabulous place, and and we went in there and walked through the cloisters and walked through this. And oh, so romantic. Uh, I was playing all my cards. And we, um, we went up in a tower uh, that overlooks the intercoastal waterway that's a part of the club. And uh, summer, so the, they had uh, uh, a lounge was completely closed. Nobody there. Um, and in this dark lounge, we sat at the windows. And, uh, and, and for an hour or two, we talked about our future together. And I want to tell you, I mean, looking out over that, seeing the Atlantic, all the bright lights twinkling outside, I had her in the palm of my hand. (laughs) Now, how in the world, I was a counselor at a camp. How in the world could I afford to have the run of the Boca Raton Hotel and club, one of the most posh, expensive places in America. Very simple. I just drove up to the gate, and when the guard at the gate looked in like, you don't belong here, not driving that car. <laughs> and, uh, and the guard looked at me, I said, my father is Norman Cortez. He's an executive. My father was an executive uh, in the company that owned the Boca Hotel. And the gate went up and I was ushered in because I had all the rights and privileges of a son. Do you understand it? It's not just your sins go to Jesus, but all the rights and privileges go to you. See, Jesus doesn't just wipe your slate clean. Oh, Jesus took all my sins away. I have a clean slate. No, he doesn't just... He gives you the Congressional Medal of Honor. Right? You become a person um, who all Jesus has done is put on that slate and credited to you so that God treats you as he treats Jesus, God would say to you, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
This is my beloved. He loves you like he loves Jesus. J.I. Packer, famous theologian, said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his whole outlook on life, it means that, we, means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. You with me? Jesus secures our adoption. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, right? That he might redeem those under the law, that we might know the full adoption as sons. Now, secondly, and finally, just two points. Put your watch away. Um, Sonship experienced. He not only secures our being sons, But now something else has to happen. He secures our legal status as sons, but verse six says that God sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts. He sent Jesus into the world to secure our adoption, but he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Jesus into the world, the Holy Spirit into our hearts to secure the actual experience of our sonship. Do you see the difference? Um, you can be legally adopted. Legal, it's done. It can't be changed. Um, you can be legally adopted. It's real, but not feel secure, right? But not feel loved. Um, you know, Christians um, uh, can be legally, uh, through, through the work of Jesus, are legally sons, but are still often insecure, critical of others, filled with anxiety, I mean, what, what son of God should be filled with anxiety? We compare ourselves to other people incessantly to feel better about ourselves. How could you feel better about yourself than that you're a son of God, cherished by God? But we do all these things. We struggle, critical of others, filled with anxiety, comparing ourselves to others, desperate for approval and success, so bruised by others' criticism, so crushed by our own failures, Right? Because we don't get it. We don't own it. We don't believe it. It doesn't sink in, right? We're children of God. We're his sons and daughters. Um, Andy Lewis, when he was here a couple years ago, pastor told us some, there were some kids in his church who were always getting in trouble. They were like teenagers. They were like truants. They, they um, were like middle schoolers and they'd get arrested, they'd go into convenience stores and they'd steal candy bars and, and cigarettes or who knows what. That was crazy, he said, because the, they were adopted. They were been like Russian uh, orphans and they brought over our country and the family that adopted them was so uber wealthy. They were trust fund kids. At age 25, they were gonna inherit millions. But they still acted like what? Orphans, orphans who are fighting for their next meal, you know. Orphans, they're stealing candy bars when they had millions. That's what it is. That's our struggle, isn't it? To actually get it, to experience that we are adopted. We have the status of sons, but not the experience. Um, It's like the prodigal, right? I'm not worthy to be called a son, the prodigal says. But he was what? When the prodigal son comes home, he's what? He's a, he's a son. He's still a son. 
But all I can say is I'm not worthy to be a son. I'm not good enough um, for the father's love. I'll be a hired hand. He doesn't believe he's welcome until he experiences what? The hug, the kiss. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. He kisses us and kisses us and kisses us and kisses us till even dense us says it's true. What does it say in Romans? What does it say? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. John Wesley was a pastor's son. John Wesley was a pastor. John Wesley studied the Bible diligently. John Wesley prayed daily. He fasted weekly. He took Saturday as a Sabbath. He took Sunday as a Sabbath. He had two Sabbath days every week. He, he, um, he cared for the poor. He fed slum children. He housed the homeless. He taught the illiterate. Only he wasn't converted. Listen to what he says. I had the religion of a slave, not the religion of a son. I was perfectly satisfied to go home and see if I couldn't pay my father back with all my duty and effort. A lot of people who go to church have the religion of a slave and not a son. And even part of going to church can be a matter of like, I've got to, I've got to be worthy of this. I've got to show God I'm serious. I have to earn it. I have to prove that I'm, I'm a Christian. I have to prove that I'm new. Thomas Goodwin was a, a chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, um, 1600s, a Puritan. And, and he gave this account of, uh, of uh, you know, a father and a son walking along a country road together. And it's very quaint and peaceful. And they're walking. Maybe the son's a few paces behind. They're having this experience together. It's lovely. But all of a sudden the father turns and he looks at the son and he sees a worm in the road and, and he picks it up, you know, and you can imagine them studying it together. And then, and then maybe playfully he tosses the worm on, on the son and the boy giggles and throws it away. And then the father picks him up and throws him there and catches him and begins to kiss him and, and puts him on his shoulders. And the son, the little boy is just laughing, right? And uh, you know what Goodwin would say? The status of that child didn't change from the time he was just walking with his father, very quaint, very nice. He was a son. To when they were playing and, and hugging and kissing, he was a son. His status never changed, but what changed? His experience of it. He experienced his father's favor. That's what the Holy Spirit does. God came into the world to secure your sonship. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart and he whispers and he sings and he kisses till you know it's true, right? You know it's true. Um, what does all this mean? We have intimacy with God. What does it say in verse six? Because your sons, there's not the, no. What does it say in verse six? Because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, what? What does he cry? Abba, Abba, Abba was a Jewish word, a Jewish like, uh, like our daddy, Papa, right? Um, so the Holy Spirit uh, entices us to cry out 
to God, to call God. This is the God who in the Old Testament, we were told, don't even use his name. Because if you use his name, you'll, you won't say it right. So you can study the Hebrew Bible and God's name isn't even printed and it's full in the Hebrew Bible. So you'll never actually say his name because you could be struck dead for saying his name. And here Jesus comes and says, cry out to him. When you pray, pray our what? Father. And here Paul says, the Holy Spirit says, you can cry out to God, Abba, Daddy, Papa. Now something very interesting here. Do you know that um, this, is a, this is an Aramaic word. This is a language spoken in Palestine. Paul's writing to Greeks. So why would he use a foreign word? They didn't know what the word Abba meant. That's why he translates it. He says, the Holy Spirit stirs up your heart so that you can cry Abba. What's the next word he says? Father. Those aren't separate words. He's translating the word Abba for them. So why does he use a word they don't understand? Because he wants them to know that they can call God the exact same word that who called God? Jesus. They can call God Abba just like Jesus. They can have this affectionate relationship with God just like Jesus. It said, who's the only person who dares wake the king at 3 a.m. in the morning and ask for a glass of water? Who would ask a king to get up out of his bed at three in the morning and get you a glass of water? Only what? Only his child. And so we can wake up in the middle of the night and our hearts can be filled with terror and we can cry, Dad, Abba, 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 Father. So so we have it. We have this intimacy with God. I just want you to see... um, Two, what else do we have? What does this adoption mean? Not just that we can pray to God, we can talk to God, we can go to God with anything. But we also have a family. What does it say in 328? There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. We are a part of this amazing multi-ethnic, multicultural, worldwide family. What does an orphan not have? They don't have a dad. They don't have a what? They don't have a family. And what does it say in verse 29 of chapter three? If you are Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, your heirs according to the promise. You know what that means? We have a story too. You can go all the way back in the very first page of the Bible. Where's Abraham in the Bible? What book of the Bible is Abraham in? Right at the start of the Bible. And you know what it says? That promises to Abraham were promises to you. You're in this story right from the very beginning. God made the world for you. The story of the world, the whole story of the Bible is a story that leads up to your adoption as God's child. You have a father. You have a family. You have a, uh, an orphan doesn't even have a story. They don't know where they came from. They don't know who their grandparents were. They don't know what their ethnicity is. They don't know anything, right? You have a father. You have a family. You have a story. In your father's house, there's a place for you. Wow. You're not just, you know, sometimes um, there's billions and billions of people on the planet. You're not just one of billions and billions of people. God knows your name. And before he ever made the world, he decided that he would send his only son into the world and allow his son to be torn asunder to adopt you. 
Holy Spirit, come, right? Help us experience it and believe it. You know, when you're a dad and you have a little one, I see these little ones born into our staff, teammates. You know, you had the privilege of holding those little ones, right? Sometimes that privilege comes at two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning, all in the same night, right? Night after night. And uh, as a dad, sometimes, you know, I'd have the chance to give my wife a break, hold those little ones, and sometimes you'd rock in a chair, but sometimes you'd just walk through the dark house, and, uh, and as you rock them, you'd try to soothe them, and you would just sing, right? And as a dad, just sing to your little babies. Maybe they were one-year-old, maybe they were two, maybe they were on your shoulder, patting their back, soothing them, loving them. Maybe they were in the crib, your hand on their back, just telling them, your daddy loves you, your daddy's for you, your daddy thinks you're so cute, your daddy loves your toes, he loves your nose, he loves your smile. Daddy's gonna teach you about Jesus. Daddy and mommy, you know, we love you, we love you, we love you, you're precious. Close your eyes right now. Why don't you listen and see if you can hear your daddy? Because you know what the Bible says? That God actually sings over his children, just like you did your little ones. You have a heavenly father, and he sings over you. Oh, hear his voice. Experience it. Come, Holy Spirit. Awaken, awaken us to the depth of your affection that you didn't just save us. You're smitten with us. We're yours. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Thank you.